Welcome to Rock Album Analysts, your weekly podcast where three lifelong friends, rock musicians, and rock fans take an in-depth look at a different rock album each week. This is your host, David Lucarelli. This is John Carson. This is Mike Gavigan. This is Dave O'Leary, guest. And today we're going to be taking a look at Kiss Unplugged. So going back to Revenge, uh, Kiss said that they wanted to accelerate the number of Kiss records that were coming out. So in fairly rapid succession, we got Kiss Alive 3, Kiss My Ass, the Kiss-produced Kiss tribute to themselves, and then we got Kiss Unplugged, which really sprang out of a strange confluence um, starting in 1989, MTV Unplugged became a regular feature of MTV, um, produced some hit records, some hit songs. Um, at the same time, around 1990, KISS started doing some acoustic renditions of some songs here and there for radio interviews and things like that. Um, but they really dove in headfirst uh, when they went to Australia and they started doing KISS conventions in addition to doing a full tour of Australia. And it was sort of seen as a way to boost the ticket sales down in Australia. Um, the KISS conventions were 12-hour affairs, and one of the main features of them was an extended acoustic set done by the band. So after they came back from Australia, they did that in America, starting in Burbank. They did all of America. They went up to Canada. They came back down, finished up in Pittsburgh. And having then done 26 shows under their belt, they did MTV Unplugged with Alex, Alex Coletti as the producer in Sony Studios, New York. Um, and that was recorded uh, towards fall, uh, let's see, 8995, so summer 95, and was released in 1996. And it was a successful album. It went gold. Um, they had the advantage of having pre-chosen the material that was best suited to an acoustic treatment, having road tested it in front of their audiences, worked out all of the possible kinks. And uh, so by the time they got to doing MTV Unplugged, they were more or less a well-oiled machine. And the other thing that was special about this show was that it marked the reunion with Ace Fraley and Peter Chris that would ultimately lead to the makeup reunion. So, um, I guess we should talk a little bit about what the conventions involved for people that weren't part of that and didn't know what that was about. So um, I went to the first North American one uh, at Burbank. Tickets are $100 right off the bat, which was not cheap by those standards. I think Comic-Con, you know, another major pop cultural convention was roughly $20, $25 a day then so this was you know four to five times that um but they had a traveling kiss museum full of costumes and lyrics and other memorabilia and the original 
uh, album paintings in some cases. They would hire a Kiss tribute band to do a full Kiss show and makeup. The band was there. Eric and Bruce were doing clinics that day. Um, Kiss came out and did a two-hour Q&A session, and then they would do a fairly loose acoustic set where they had a certain number of songs that they would uh, premeditated to do, and then they would open it up, ask for requests. Sometimes they would just play a few bars of the song, but you know they ended up playing a very wide variety of obscure songs, and uh, then they would end the evening you know, around 11.30 by signing autographs for everybody that wanted them. Um, it was an amazing experience. I, you know, I vividly remember being there in the audience and the question, uh, came up, somebody said, I want to know when Ace, Peter, Paul, and Gene are going to play a show together. Right. And I thought immediately, oh man, this guy, uh, you know, what a Yahoo, that's absolutely never going to happen. And, uh, just goes <laughs> to show what I know, but then, uh, they brought out Peter Chris and he plays wow. hard luck woman and he plays nothing to lose. And supposedly the story goes that this was something that was suggested by Eric Singer, who, in the short term may have regretted that suggestion <laughs> because it meant he lost a job for a while, but actually in the long run probably helped KISS remain a viable entity, especially on the live front. So um, that's my basic KISS convention experience. And then Dave, you would have seen them next at Vegas. How was that compared to mine? You know, it's just basically the same thing. It was, uh, you know, for me, it was, it was a lot of fun because I got to take my oldest daughter with me who had, at that point in her life, she's a teenager, very much into what was happening then at that time, Green Day, Goldfinger, all that kind of thing. And uh, really was never hit the kiss because it's her, that's her dad's thing. But she, it, it kind of changed her, you know, changed her perspective with the band. She became a fan. And I think the, the very next Halloween, uh, she made a point to be Paul Stanley for Halloween. <laughs> and she, yeah. She made it, yeah, and then she made, uh, uh, we have these things in my house, they're, they're steamer trunks that all the kids, they're kind of like time capsules. Mm. And when she made hers, that I still have here, because she lives in Amsterdam now, she didn't take it with her, but it's all kiss stuff. You know, it's got nice. kiss stuff all over it. So it was transformational for her and, and, and for me to watch her experience that all day and really get out of it something, you know, that I, I was unexpected for me as her father. I got just as much fun watching her as I did watching the event itself. So it was pretty cool. That's amazing that you got to experience it by seeing it through her eyes like that. Now, Mike, yeah. because you're a hustler, you never paid that $100. Tell us about that. <laughs> well, you know, hustler, you know, is, is a bit of a stretch, but I'll, I'll just say this. Uh, at the time, I was in a Kiss tribute band, and we had heard that they were doing the convention tour, and they were going to have Kiss tribute bands play as you know, part of the event. So we reached out to, I believe it was Shelly Bergeron and she lived in Sherman Oaks, you know, down the street from me. And, um, you know, as it turned out, they were had all the shows booked. So, you know, we said, listen, we're from Pittsburgh. We'd like to close the thing out. I know this, the guys that are on this show, they've already done multiple shows. Can we, can a concession be made on our behalf? Basically the answer was no. However, we will let the band in for free and we'll let you in early. And that, that was our compensation for the fact that we couldn't be on, on the tour, which, you know, I would love to play that, that show. It would have been a, the ultimate thing to be you know, in your hometown playing in front of your heroes. 
but you know things don't always go the way they're supposed to. But nonetheless, we got into the, the convention, you know, at, you know, quote unquote, a discount rate. Um, and I think it's it's also been said too that you know what, the question about the, the ticket price. I think Gene had said, you know, I'd rather the the, the event go on. That I'd rather people say that the the thing was too long rather than too short. Uh -huh. You know, a twelve hour event. I, I I felt like I definitely at the you know I mean at the time I think you know bands like the Eagles were touring and, and their ticket prices were like forty dollars, which was a lot of money, right? Right. You know, but you know, for twelve, if you do the math, you know, hundred hundred dollars for you know twelve hour event with Kiss, as much as you got, you got you know bootleg dealers, you got Kiss merchandise, you know official merchandise, the Kiss Museum, the clinics, all that stuff we mentioned. You definitely got your money's worth. You got autographs. You got to meet the band. Um, and as a matter of fact, one of the coolest things for me was, you know, I have a, a, a an Ibanez seventy uh, nine PS ten guitar. I have one. When I finally got straight, you know, through to Paul and I had him sign the thing, he's like, "Hey, great guitar!" And I was dressed up as Ace, you know, in the makeup and the costume, and he said, "Hey, you look great." You know, so I was like, "Great, this is you know the ultimate thing." And then, of course, you know, that was cool. But then I go to Gene. And I wanted a poster to get autographed. And, and I said to Gene, hey, thank you so much for coming to Pittsburgh. He's like, I didn't know it was yours. <laughs> <laughs> okay, all right, Gene. You know, so, all right. Yeah. But that's Gene. You know, I get it. it to, bottom line, it was a great experience, you know, from head to toe. Um, and, I mean, you know, 100 bucks, you know, <laughs> when you look, at, you look back at it, 100 bucks is a bargain compared to you know, what you're paying for tickets these days and the amount of entertainment that we got for that day. Yeah. You know, something else that I just thought of um, that's interesting is they sold pre-sold autographed copies of their CDs signed by Gene and Paul uh, that you could order there. And they weren't that expensive. I want to say they were like 20 bucks, 25 bucks. I mean, you know, it was yeah. maybe twice what you pay for a normal CD. And then they'd send you their autographs in the mail, which like now, considering how much they would charge <laughs> or something like that, it's just amazing. Yeah. But, yeah. uh, but it was a super cool event. I mean, you got to see like historic, you know, costumes and guitars. I mean, that, that was, you know, a Kiss fan's dream, you know, and this is a precursor to what was going to happen in the next, you know, few years with, you know, the original band getting back together. It was a great time and the band were in killer shape. You know, it was a great time to be a Kiss fan because things, all the things you loved about Kiss were coming together and it was an yeah. adventure. You didn't know where it was going. And yeah, it was, yeah, it was beautiful. And we should mention too, Tommy Thayer was very much involved behind the scenes and putting this thing together, making sure it went off right. Kevin Valentine was actually involved running the sound for many of these. Um, yeah. So yeah, they had a really good team and they, they pulled it off. Um, all right, so that brings us to working with Alex Coletti as the producer at Sony Studios New York. Um, Interestingly enough, they would go on to have another show produced by Alex Coletti after they put the makeup back on when they played the Super Bowl. So this was in some ways just a prelude to that. Um, Kiss has always said that uh, the best songs work on an acoustic guitar and that if you boil a song down to playing it on an acoustic guitar and it doesn't work, then no amount of Marshall stacks or production bells and whistles is gonna turn it into a better song. So this was in some ways a way for them to reverse engineer that theory and provide us with their songs in a stripped down acoustic format. They opened with Coming Home. Uh, really, uh, my my take on it was that it was a great song to open with because it is sort of them saying we're coming home. This I'm, I think of this album as the beginning of kiss 
becoming sort of a nostalgia act. Um, you know, I know that that, I, that that makes it sound like I, I don't agree with it, but it's sort of like they're finally uh, allowing themselves to pull from the past and pull from the present, you know, to make, to show what a story band they are. They don't seem to be scrambling anymore to keep, you know, making new and new stuff. They're sort of becoming, and, and nostalgia act seems like a mean way to put it, but they're pulling from everything at that point. And so I think the song coming home because it's an older song is a nice way to open it. I've never been a huge fan of that song, but I think it's a good opener saying we're back, everybody here we are you know, coming home to our fan base. Dave? This Dave? Yeah. You know, I, you know, I, I, I feel about the same as that you do um, about it. I do have emotional connection to it in a couple of ways to that particular song is one, as, as I think I said to you guys before, Hotter Than Hell was my first Kiss experience, my first album I bought. Um, so I had that emotional connection to that experience. And then seeing that show the way I did in Las Vegas with my daughter. And that's obviously how they basically, they came out of the gate when they started playing, uh, when they actually got the acoustic set, which surprised me again, this is pre-internet days when you really didn't know what they were doing. So everything came as a surprise. You know, we weren't hearing the typical Detroit Rock City and those things. So really I, I, to, hear, to have it finally archived in this sense on an actual official release, and, and a great mix, by the way. Um, I, 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 I tell you, it's still one of my favorite songs um, on that record, if, you know, if not my favorite song on that record, probably because of those two components. Um, I think for, for me with this record, I mean, you know, for, I, I want to say they, they broadcast this around the time of Halloween, right? On MTV? Yeah, it was right the day of Halloween, I think. Yeah, I mean, yeah. when they you know they do songs from in, in, that deep in their catalog, and this is the first song they're playing as part of that show, it was amazing. You know, as a Kiss fan, it was all the things that we wanted as, as a Kiss fan. You know, you, you would expect them to open with the, the standards like Detroit City or Deuce, and they open with Coming Home. Um you know, and there were just things that I learned, like there were chord changes that they played that I could see that I didn't know were there because the mix on Hotter Than Hell is kind of dense and, you know, hard to decipher. But, you know, there was in front of me. I was like, oh, OK, that's how you play that song. You know, it was it was mind blowing. I, I thought it was great. I was so excited um, just to know that they were, you know, on MTV doing the Unplugged thing and just on the on the, the Unplugged thing. Uh, there were other bands that have been doing the Unplugged stuff, and there were great ones like uh, the Steve Ray Vaughan Unplugged and Neil Young, and there were others that, you know, that weren't so great, and I won't mention any names. Uh, but as part of the uh, convention tour, Kiss have been playing guitars um, that were you know, similar to this one, which is a Gibson Chet Atkins SST, right? Which is semi-hollow, semi-solid-body you know, kind of thing. And one of the stipulations for them to do the Unplugged show on MTV was they had to play actual acoustic guitars. And I read an interview with Bruce where he said, and I've also asked him about this, um, apparently they had like a bunch, they were rehearsing at SAR before, you know, the show, it, it, the, the, the taping, and they brought in a bunch of acoustic guitars and literally on the fly, they were deciding what guitars were gonna work and which ones weren't. Mm. So, you know, previously huh. they were using things like, you know, the, the, you know, the Chet Atkins guitar with a, a Sans amp preamp into an amplifier, you know, on the convention tour. So the, the, basically MTV said, listen, if you're gonna do this, it's got to be acoustic. <laughs> they had to make a major change, which think about it, man. If you've been on the road for you know two or three months playing these songs 
on the guitars in the year that you're accustomed to playing. And then all of a sudden you got to be on national TV and film something and go to a completely different setup. Talk about pressure, you know, mm-hmm. but yeah. nowhere along the line, did it seemed like that they were bothered by that, you know, that notion they delivered, you know, straight away, right out of the gate. And I thought it was great that they opened with the song by coming home. Cool. Yeah. And, you know, they do add a little bit of, sustain and distortion to Bruce's uh, solos and, and stuff, because there's just no way to to really play those on a, a, a standard, completely standard acoustic guitar. Yeah. Yeah. And it, this might get into like technical stuff, but like if you have a regular acoustic guitar, I mean, you're basically limited to, you could probably solo in the key of E, which is around the 12th fret, right? But if, if you don't have that, that access to the, you know, the other parts of the fretboard, which is where most people solo, then you're so limited. <laughs> so no wonder yeah. they had, you know, you know, people bringing stuff down to SIR so they could figure out how to do this. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And thanks to Dave, we've heard the, the raw, uncut uh, audio from the show it's interesting. This is the one Kiss live album where I think they actually pulled back the audience mics because it's a fairly rowdy, loud, boisterous New York Kiss audience. They're constantly yeah. shouting stuff yeah. out. Um, and they got rid of a lot of stuff, a lot of that. Yeah. Um, it's interesting, too. The take that ended up on the album is actually the second time they played this song. Um, and they played it, they opened with it, Paul's voice cracked immediately on the very first line, and then they went back to it much later in the set when he was properly warmed up, which is, to be honest, not that different than what we frequently end up doing with ADR, with actors in the studio, when Mm -hmm. we, you know, we start working in the morning, and their voice is not in the same pitch and, and timbre, and then after they've found the character's voice, and then we go back and say, hey, let's redo the first few lines, because now you're, now you're warmed up, so it's interesting to see that that happens in the music world, too. Um, Then they go into another song that is, you know, you don't want to say B material, but none of these are songs that ended up on Kiss Alive 1 or Kiss Alive 2. You got to hand it to them for choosing material that really worked well in this format, even if it wasn't the most well-known stuff. And so they did Plaster Caster. Yeah, and I agree with you. It is interesting, their choice of songs. I would assume they did it, you know, I would hope that they chose it because they fit well with acoustic guitars, but also were um, nice, um, you know, throwbacks to, um, I guess, the KISS conventions. It's kind of interesting because if you look at other unplugs at the time, which I did for, you know, giggles, uh, most of the bands are playing their hits. You know what I mean? They're doing, these are the the hits that we do, whereas KISS is doing, um, you know, songs that only KISS fans are really going to know. Um, and I thought that was kind of interesting because I remember watching it with someone who was sort of a casual Kiss fan. And they were like, I don't know any of these songs. So Plaster Caster is, um, it's kind of a ridiculous song, but it actually works. I mean, in this format, it's kind of like one of those, you get this positive feedback loop because you're like, oh, I know that song, that song's from blah, 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 you know what I mean? And so you, even though normally when I listen to it on the original album, I'm kind of like, okay, this is kind of a silly song, but kind of cool. Um, on this one, you have that, that visceral reaction of like, I can't believe they chose this song. I, you know, why did they do this song? You know, and, and um, you know, why is this so acoustic? So then you sort of listen to it a little bit um, 
more deeply. But, you know, so I like it for that fact, for the whole sort of like, wow, what an odd choice. Dave? Yeah, again, I think there's a, I have an emotional connection to this song, Dave. I think you and I probably talked about this, and I'll just make it brief. Is you know, my best friend and I, um, with the Kiss fanatics that we were, had the same birthday, everything in common, and mm-hmm. and um, Love Gun had come out, and we had seen the the live the the obviously the the live two shows at the Forum, and uh, shortly thereafter he passed away. Wow. He had a heart attack at the ripe age of 15 years of age. And uh, the last album we listened to before he passed away was the the Love Gun album. And he was a huge fan of that song, Mm. coincidentally. So I do have that emotional connection to it. But there's also the the, the fan in me wishes Kiss still had a little bit of that sense of adventure that they had at this time of their career. They're picking Mm -hmm. some of the deeper cuts, as you said, that, you know, John, but the fans really... You know, maybe the, the hardcore fans really know it, but the casual fans don't. Um, I, I sure wish they would go back to that and sprinkle some of that magic into the current sets where we get a, a, just a little, a couple of those little throwaways like this that you don't expect to make the set fresh and exciting for the hardcore fans. But that's a soapbox issue for me. Uh, but I, I got to tell you, I love the song for, for, for those reasons. I think it was just, you know, the, you know, sort of the one, two, three punch. I mean, they were coming out of the gate with playing songs that weren't hits. You know, it, it was all about, like you said, David, you know, going back to the, you know, the, the obscure, obscure tracks, you know, that they hadn't playing live, you know, in terms of other than the, the convention tour. But, you know, it was, I mean, I was excited from head to toe when they were playing. When I saw this, I turned on TV, I thought, my God, this is, this is the kiss that I've always wanted in a way, you know. And it was better than the things like we saw in the Crazy Nights tour and, then things got better with Hot in the Shade and the Revenge, but you know now all of a sudden they're like going way back into the catalog and playing some cool stuff. And you know also too, you know, just despite what you might think about the lyrics of, of the song, it's a well-written song. Yeah, and, yeah, I, yeah. I, I feel like yeah. I'm, I'm bad mouthing it. I actually like the song because it's kind of silly and an interesting take on something. Yeah, but, I mean, yeah, we've I, always I said like, yeah, it, it's it, it's killer. I mean, it's it. <laughs> to hear like you know a song like Plaster Caster being sung sung on you know and, and national TV at the time was great. I you know Bravo Kiss you know good for those guys. You know? <laughs> right? Yeah, yeah, it's totally true. Right? They yeah. pulled it out for MTV. This is their one chance to blow themselves wide open again, and they're playing Plaster Caster. You know right? Mean? Yeah. No, I I agree a hundred percent. And um, much like. Coming home. This is a song that they they played initially right out of the gate, and they went back to and did another version of. I'm not sure which version they ended up using, um, but just as an aside, I agree with David O'Leary 100% about the need to uh, shake up the set list and whatnot. And I know that their argument against doing that is that they're playing for the casual Kiss fan, but I, I think that the casual Kiss fan doesn't care so much about what songs they play. They want to hear probably Love Gun and Detroit Rock City and Rock and Roll All Night, maybe one or two other songs. And then the casual Kiss fan is basically coming to see the fire and the explosions and the costumes and the makeup and just have a good time. You know, it's everybody else that wants to hear the songs like this live these days. And, you know, Alice Cooper is an artist that I think does a really good job of always 
putting in one or two deep cuts and changing it up every tour for the hardcore fan to go, wow, I can't believe they played that song. I wish that Kiss could take a little bit of inspiration from him when it comes to that stuff. Um, anyhow, then they go into Going Blind. Okay, so my my thematic view of these uh, song choices is that it's all the songs about weird love. Uh, <laughs> in their set list, it's <laughs> one of the themes that sort of popped out to me as they do Plastercaster, then their weird, you know, Nabokov, you know, whatever song. Um, and then there's, you know, um, Do You Love Me? You know, all the sort of like their little view on, you know, all their different... Uh, look at love you know what i mean um through a specifically kiss lens um <clears throat> i love this song acoustic i'm i the the original version whatever you know i like that too but this that the way that gene is able to play that snaky little bass line through there and sing it and play it i was just like this is this is awesome this is my this is my surprise hit from this album is listening to that song it's one of my favorites on the album now and it's not even that huge of a, i'm not even that huge of a fan of it before but just that just, the way it just grooves you know what i mean it's just it's great Dave? Yeah, I, I love the song, Always Have. I think it's one of those creepy songs that I, I liked, as a, you know, especially when I was younger. But it was one, it fell on that realm of the, the darker Gene songs, even though God of Thunder is not particularly a, a Gene scripted song per se. But as a young fan, it kind of fell in the vein of that, you know, that, that, that version of Gene that was dark and mysterious. And, and, and this version of the song, though, um, I have to say it's 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 a it's a coin toss for me which which is my favorite the studio or the acoustic version. Again, going back to the point earlier, guys, the casual fans weren't really tuning in to MTV then. It was everybody, you know. Capture this again and go back and play some of these songs again. Damn it, because they're great songs and it's proven on a record like this. By the way, mm -hmm. yeah, it's a great song. Yeah. And I'll say that, you know, if you can compare the production to what's on Hotter Than Hell, I mean, it's, he, there's a lot of minor chords in the song and the, the production is kind of dark and dense and on Hotter Than Hell. And as a, as a kid, you know, I think I, I got that record when I was probably eight or nine years old. That song kind of scared me as a kid. It seemed yeah. really dark. And what am I listening to here? But to me, now this is a much better presentation of the song. It's It's more clear. And love the fact that he revisits the uh, the lyric a little lay uh, from the land beneath the sea, which is apparently you know one of the original lyrics that he written for the song. Um, but you know, from a guitar standpoint too, I think the solo section is still over a lot of minor chords. But you know, Ace is basically playing like a major pentatonic scale over the minor chords, which you know yep. it's so understated but so effective for the song and so supportive. It's a great, great solo. And you got the echo on the side, you know, but right, you know, Bruce is like doing his version of it and it works. You know, those guys did their homework. They were on top of their game as a band at this time, you know, and this this song that they pulled, you know, from you know the catalog, which they've been playing on the convention tour is a great example of that. Which, by the way, is the kind of thing that used to drive Eddie Kramer crazy when Ace would choose to play a major pentatonic over a minor chord yeah. like that. But yeah. um, 
Yeah, I was going to mention the lyric change too. To me, that is the last vestige of Gene Klein, the science fiction, fantasy, horror, fanzine producer, comic book reading teenage kid, right? Because Little Lady from the Land Beneath the Sea seems to have nothing to do with the song. And now now we're like in a whole other world. Or is she a mermaid? What are we talking about here? But it's great that he just pulled that out of the hat, you know, changed the lyric to a, a version that had never even been recorded or known by the fans at that point. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the fact that he cared enough about that lyric to, to include that. And I know he's also mentioned, too, that this song might have been inspired by the mountain song, a theme from an imaginary Western, which you know, has similar chord yeah. changes. Um, but I, at the same time, too, I remember on the convention tour, speaking of, you know, things that they brought back, there was a, a moment at the Pittsburgh uh, Kiss convention where I think um, they're going to play Charisma. And, and apparently Paul didn't know what, you know, how to play Charisma. And, and Gene said to him, you know, off mic, simple type, you know, like they were, they were <laughs> referencing, they're referencing songs, you know, that nobody really at that time really knew. I mean, if you, if you knew it, then you were on the, you know, the, the you know, the fringe of like, you know, you know, the bootleg circuit, but, you know, they were, they're mentioning things on stage that none of us had heard. And the, I, they were just in tune. They were just in tune in terms of their, their stature and their catalog. And I love it. It was great. Yeah. So then do you love me, which they also went through two times. Um, I find that the, the songs like this, that, that are, are hard rock straight ahead songs, but the ones that have space seem to work best in this format. Mm-hmm. And there's a ton of space in do you love me yeah nothing i mean i got nothing really to i i like the song it, it uh, has some nice ringy chords in it you know what i mean that are actually better produced i feel than the original you know what i mean in terms of like what the sustain on the chords uh mm-hmm. sounds a lot cooler when he's done the do you love me and it's still the chords still riding you know well what this I mean? is so, is this the first time they added that outro that then they they added live later on it might be right. Yeah, the thing that where uh, it mimics the, uh, the 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 bells that are on uh, destroyed, right? right? Yeah. yeah, yeah. Which is a great part. It's a killer part. Yeah. Yeah. So I got nothing more to add to that. I mean, it, it works. Dave, can I? No, yeah. no, always, no. Go ahead, Dave. Go ahead. Go ahead. I was just going to jump in and say that you know the, the the easiest thing to do when you're doing an, an, an acoustic type show is to do a lot of strumming and make things busier than it has to be and pretend that you've got to be making noise and making you know creating sonic texture you know like you said John it, it's like E A or you know A E whatever you know in the chorus I mean there's mm-hmm. there's a whole ton of space in there you know <laughs> right but the using the acoustics help it ring a little bit better yeah for yeah it worked really well. All right. Dave? Sorry, I jumped in. <laughs> you know, it's interesting. I had, I, had a, I had this conversation yesterday with a student of mine, and, and it was about space in songs. That that's really, you know, that's a, there's an art to not playing. Mm-hmm. Right. You know, it, it truly is. And this is, this is to write to, to, you know, to the example that you said before about strip all the other stuff away. Just give me an acoustic guitar and play it. If it's a good damn song, it's going to be a good song. And this is a great example of that point. Anything else to add, Mike? No? No. Okay. So sure, then, after several failed attempts, <laughs> they they played Domino, uh, which is a song that I wouldn't think would work as well as it does in the acoustic f- format. But again, lots of space in that song. 
and it, it really does seem to work well. Um, it's interesting to me that Gene, at some point, as they're going through the, the second or third take of the song, says, hey, by the way, uh, are, are we allowed to say thick? Presumably because he's worried about the word bitch, right? Um, and now you would think that MTV would have gone through all the lyrics and all the songs they're playing with a fine tooth comb and ironed this stuff out, not waited until they've run through the song several times to figure out whether or not they're going to let Kiss say this word. And you'd think that Gene would have just automatically thought to say that girl bends over because that's what they did on the version they released the video for. And they were already saying she's got to have it all instead of, you know, she's got me by the balls. Um, but I wonder in his mind what he was thinking. How would the word thick work in that context? That thick bends over. I mean, I was thinking about it. If it were me, you could say that twit bends over, and that would, <laughs> that would kind of. Yeah. Work. But yeah, well, yeah. Anyhow, yeah. yeah. Your thoughts, John? I, you basically said everything. I thought the same thing. How did the, how is this going to work acoustically? And it worked absolutely fine. Um, again, again, it kicks with my thematic of the weird love that people from the planet kiss go through, you know what I mean? So it stays with that theme of all the songs that they choose. Um, and again, the, the bass part is, I love the acoustic bass. And I've always wanted to buy one of those acoustic basses, but then I always think to myself, that's really kind of stupid because you can get the same sound from your electric bass. You just have to play trebly or, you know what I mean, or whatever. Uh, so I always stop myself from dropping, you know, a grand on one of those acoustic basses. But it definitely sounds a lot brighter than the original recording, and I like that sort of feel to it. Dave? No, this is, you know, I don't have much to add to it. Other, you know, it's it's a great song. I liked it when it, when it first appeared, obviously on Revenge, and then subsequently on Alive Three. Um, this 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 is a good a, a good service to that of that song. You know, it's fine. <laughs> it's one of those songs. Fine. It's just fine. Mike, I just love the fact that if you you researched, you know, the, the the previous takes that they did for this for this uh, recording, you know, I, I think it's in the second verse where Gene. I, the problem was like, apparently Gene kept screwing up the second verse of the song, right? Yeah. So when you listen to the CD that was released, the the audience applauds during the second verse, and you think, why the hell are they right? Because he got through it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Not, that's, a, that's a great second verse. No, you <laughs> got it right. So you know that's the surprise there. But uh, from my perspective, musical thing, again, if you if you just take Johnny Average, you know, guitar player, musician or whatever and say, okay, you know, and they're the kind of guys that's, you know, playing Kiss songs, Kiss songs are easy. They're simple. They're stupid. You know, no, you play this song if you've never heard it before and you present that in an acoustic version, you know, it, it, it's not that easy, but Kiss makes it look easy. And this is a, a perfect example of that. I think, you know, it, it, they delivered in terms of what would have been a heavy song in an acoustic format and, you know, it, it shows that they really were, again, in tune with uh, where they were as a band um, in terms of their strength. It's interesting. This song was actually on the last three Kiss releases, right? It was on Revenge, Alive 3, and now Kiss Unplugged, in a, essentially in a row, if you don't right. kiss my I feel ass. like they think it's as a better song than it actually is. Do I? <laughs> yeah. 
Like, does anybody else think that? I mean, I feel like that you could make room for something else. I don't hate it, but I feel like Gene is like, oh, it's got to have dominant. It's got to have dominant. You know what I mean? Like, it's, I don't know. Or at least he felt that at the time because they yeah. subsequently haven't played it for a really long time. Oh, okay. All right. Yeah. John, you actually stole that out of my head, I think. Because, you know, in the back of my mind, I was thinking, you know, I don't want to hurt anybody's feelings here. The song doesn't, I don't hate the song. But it is, to your point exactly, I felt like there's, that, 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 that place on the record would have been better served with another song. And yeah, my, my, I mean, whatever. Right. It's, again, it's a fine song. And it's, the more I listen to it, the more I'm like, yeah, it's a pretty actually complicated song. But then, again, like you, I think they think it, I think they thought it was better than it actually was. I think Gene spent a lot of time writing it. And that's why you shouldn't have your editor as your produce, as your, you know, the director or whatever. How well, much, you know, probably why you shouldn't more. produce your own albums? <laughs> what? You shouldn't produce your own albums? Right. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I think he, I don't know. I think he probably put a lot of work into that song and then thinks it's, you know, his great magna opus or whatever. But, you know, think about this too. There were other Gene songs from the Revenge album that were, um, you know, in the running, I mean, they played Spit, but I don't think they played Unholy. No. Right? No. And I, I'm not even so, so sure they played on, on the uh, the Kiss Convention tour. So, you know, I guess it all comes down to what song works in an acoustic format, right? Yeah, yeah. I think, well, that might be something else as to why they're choosing it. So, yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. So then they go into Sure Know Something. Paul's voice is fully warmed up by this point, and he slays it. Yeah, I freaking hate this song in the uh, on the recorded album, but I really liked it on this one. I mean, it really sounds nice and smooth and like, you know, almost like hard rock and AM disco from the 70s, but it really works. Like, I really liked it a lot. Um, I liked it a lot better. But again, I think some of this is that visceral thing of like, oh, I can't believe they chose this song. Oh, I, love yeah, I remember this. You know what I mean? But at the same time, because it is, it's a very weird choice. You know, I don't think it was that was that ever released as a single or anything like that. Yeah, but it it totally works. Like maybe it was one of those where they were like, we can make this sound great with acoustic instruments. Um, but yeah, no, I liked it. You know, and and I liked it more than the when it was recorded on um, the original recording. Dave, you know, I, I like this song. I actually love this song from Dynasty. Um, but I like it better here. I think it's fantastic uh, with this acoustic rendition. And, and interestingly enough, I had a, uh, a friend that I work with who's a lot older than, than we are, um, hated him, hated the band, 100%. <laughs> Anytime that they came up in any form whatsoever in conversation, he would always make sure he told you how much he hated that band. Well, I was listening to this CD when it came out, right? I was listening to it in my car and he was with me. And he's listening along up to this point, by the way. And he actually looks at me and says, you need to spend more time listening to bands like this, the Eagles, than you do that other stuff. <laughs> and I try to say, this the Eagles. This is Kiss. He goes, no, this is the Eagles. I'm like, you know what? I win. Kiss is cool. Thank you very much. <laughs> you know? That's great. <laughs> I, I love the fact that the, the, you know, the production on Dynasty is kind of, you know, out there, you know, you can't really sink your teeth into it. Whereas this version is, it's in your face, it's pronounced and uh, their vocal harmonies are killer. And there's a lot of stuff that's going on guitar wise that I learned, you know, as a guitar player that I didn't hear when I listened to the dynasties, the, the dynasty version. So 
thank goodness for this version. They, they killed it, man. I mean, it, at the same time, too, it was also around this time, you know, in a Kiss tribute band. And this gave me the incentive to say, well, maybe we can try other, you know, songs that aren't, you know, the hits that are on Kiss Alive and Alive 2. And uh, this gave us the, loop, the, the blueprint of, you know, how to play those things and make that something you could do, you know, and present that live electrically. Funny, funnily enough, you know, inspired by an acoustic version of the song. Huh. Yeah, that's cool. I didn't think of that. Yeah, something we haven't really talked about. Um, I don't think there's a ton of fixes on this album. I'm sure that there are some, mm. uh, you know, overdubs and patches and, you know, where they fixed bum notes and stuff. I, I, I very much remember there's one bad note that Bruce hits that's on video where the second that he does it, Paul gives him this look where it's like, <laughs> man, if looks could kill, you could just tell. Uh, but... In general, I think that what we hear on the finished album doesn't sound remarkably different than what's on the raw tapes. No, and Dave, I think you're right. And I, I also read something as well. I and mean, we all also you know, talk about, you know, the sonic bombast of, you know, Kiss playing, you know, loud in, in any situation. And one of the things that I read was apparently like if you were in the room when they were taping this, it was super loud. <laughs> Go figure, right? But at the same time, if, if that's the case, you've got acoustic live microphones, then you've got less of a chance, you know, to really dial something back and say, okay, we need to replace that. It's either it's the take or it's not. You know? Yeah, I'm sure there was bleed all over the place and it would yeah. be difficult to really change too much. Um, so then they go into a song near and dear to my heart. A World Without Heroes. And it's mm. interesting, on the Raw Tapes, Paul introduces this song. He says, now here's a song from an album that some people can't get enough of, and other people, if they hear any of it, it's already too much. <laughs> <laughs> and, but, you know, it's funny that he has a sense of humor about it, but for some reason, they seemed more comfortable with that album then than they do today, which is right. weird to me. Um, and I think Gene does a great job of singing it. There is one lyric change that, that is kind of odd. He says, things are no longer what they seem. And the original lyric was, things are no more than they seem. Um, which works either way, um, but is a completely different meaning. You know, mm -hmm. uh, things are no longer what they seem. Um, or, or, yeah, the original one is things are no more than they seem, being that there is there is nothing beyond what you see and hear to life. There is nothing, you know, no no mystical truth or or uh, anything to believe in. But things are no longer what they seem. Is much more kind of a, a Black Sabbath attitude of you've been raised to believe. In, in Santa Claus and life being good and actually life is dark and meaningless and, you know, that kind of thing. So interesting that Gene chose to change that one line. Yeah, I have nothing to add. I, I like that they did something from The Elder. I wish they could have done something else, but it sort of makes sense that that was, that probably lends itself most acoustically to it. And you couldn't really do, I guess you could get away with I, but that's a very heavy song you know so I, I i liked it i liked that they did a nod to the elder dave 
No, I agree. I agree. I think it was the right inclusion from that record. I think you're probably the one that would have worked the best in this setting. Um, always liked the song, by the way, but I think it worked very well in this setting. And I'm just glad they didn't forget it and uh, and bury it. So um, hats off to them for for uh, for doing it. I think it's a great version of the song. Um, and at the same time, too, I was you know very pleased to know that you know. If, I learned as a result that, you know, Paul Stanley played the guitar solo on this track. It was always a, a debate among, you know, Kiss fans, guitar players, like, who played this solo? Okay, well, you have the proof. Um, but I have a question, too, about um, the lyric change you mentioned, Dave. Is that consistent among the takes they did for the recording? Was it always that lyric change the same among the takes for the, for the recording or no? I think so. I think okay. did they do more than one ver take of this one. I no, I think they, they only did the one take. Only did the one. Okay. Okay. Yeah. They may have started it and stopped it really quickly, but they didn't okay. get to that line by the time they did. Cool. Okay. Yeah. So then they go into Rock Bottom, which obviously the acoustic intro works beautifully as, as well it should. And then again, another Kiss song that makes great use of space and works amazingly well in the acoustic format. Yeah, I got, I got, another, I mean, it's, it's, again, it's brighter than the original version, um, but there's nothing really to, I mean, and it's, I like, I like the song a lot. It's one of my favorite Kiss songs, so I'm glad it was included. Dave? Yeah, one of my favorite Kiss songs, too. Um, absolutely. I think it's, it's a great song. It's a simple song, but again, it's one of those songs in this setting that just shows you, hey, it's stripping everything back. You know, Kiss has got some great songs, and, and some of those songs have some really, really good groove, um, whether or not they're played unplugged acoustically or, you know, at 10,000 decibels at, at, at Cobo Hall. Um, you know, th and this, this song is a great test a testament to me of, of, of their writing and, um, and the effectiveness of, of, of a simple song. And, and I'm glad they included it. It was one of those that I thought, wow. You know, not only do you bring it back, like think or doing things you've never done before, but you're going to choose to bring a song like this back to life that we haven't heard since when? Since 1975. Um, and I got to think because it won over it probably as well as it did is one of the reasons we saw it on the reunion tour. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It, it also, you know, killer. You know, vocal take from Paul. Uh, the intro is killer, and you know the. Just the band itself is you know it's they're they're on top of the game. But the funny thing about the um the, the, the verse though, it's got one of the strangest chord changes, which is the that E to the F sharp is like the weirdest chord. There's like so many open it's it almost shouldn't work, but it works. You know? uh -huh. <laughs> and you know, and it works the fact that it works so well on acoustic guitar in this case is all the more amazing. But, you know, and, and Bruce does a great job of, you know, nailing the essence of the solo, you know, thank goodness, you know, for, for you know, I mean, this, again, was such a great time, you know, as being a Kiss fan and, and hearing these songs again you know, that we hadn't heard in years. Thank you, there, guys, you know. Yeah, um, there is a weird edit when they go from the acoustic to the, what would normally be the balls out electric part, right, where... Yeah. You know, when Paul says this is where it gets rough, and then they go immediately into it without any count. That's not how they did it live. And I can understand there's a big pause when they count it out live and they wanted to minimize that. But the mm -hmm. edit is so tight 
that it, they're just you, listening to it. You're like, there's no way four musicians in a room got any kind of cue to come in together, like the sec, you know, the microsecond after he stopped speaking. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So then, uh, see you tonight from Gene's solo album. I, uh, <laughs> again, this is another one of those, Hey, look, they picked this song. I can't believe it's from Gene's solo record. This is the one where Gene sounds like he's one of the Beatles. What an odd choice, but that's still pretty cool because it shows what an enormous catalog they have. Um, I'm not a huge fan of the song. You know what I mean? It is kind of beam material. It's not one that I'm like, you know what I need to hear today is see you tonight by Gene. You know, <laughs> but it's, uh, it's again, one of those fun things where you're like, oh yeah, I, for I forgot about that. And um, and I like the Beatlesque, you know, vibe to it too, you know, so it's cool. And again, it shows sort of the um, uh, large ability of Kiss to write different kinds of stuff. You know, they're not just a one-trick pony. Dave? No, I, I, I think this is, again, one of those songs that, uh, and, and looking at it in the whole, of all the material they chose to, to represent during you know, this, these conventions and subsequently on this album, as documented on this album, I, you know, I, I got to say, you stand back and look at that in the whole, and I just it makes me proud of him. It made me proud of him then. Because it was more than, to me... Um, when you're having those discussions with a non-fan or somebody who's kind of on the sidelines trying to make their mind whether they like this band or not, I heard you know you hear a lot of commentary. Kiss is just a three-chord band. Well, no, they're not. Mm -hmm. And you listen to a record like this, especially then, that these guys are cool. They are really cool right now. Mm -hmm. You know, this is a band that I, you know, I stuck behind all these years, and they're proving the point to me of why I'm still a fan because their material is whether you like it all or not. They are a very diverse band. And a lot of people don't know that, but give them a record like this. And it's not just flipping rock and roll or night in Detroit, Rock City and Beth. Certainly those are on there to some degree, but it's the other material like this. that really, to me, makes the point of what a really underrated musical band this really is. And the end for me. And to David's point about, you know, even just songs like, you know, Deuce, Detroit Rock City, da, da, da. I mean, you know, there are tons of other bands that could never write a song like, you know, those songs, <laughs> you know, so again, the depth of, of what they have in terms of their catalog and their songwriting, you know, amazing. But again, as a Kiss fan, hearing a song like, you know, See You Tonight, you know, on MTV was mind blowing. Um, I know but, that's the biggest, I'm sorry to interrupt, but that is my biggest thing about this is I was like, what are you doing? Like this is your chance. You're on national TV on a program that everybody chooses to tune into and watch. And you are essentially doing one, two hits that people will know. Mm -hmm. And the rest of it is your, your, uh, your, whatever. This is a, and this is almost, this is pretty ballsy of Kiss to do this, especially as a band yeah. that has always been so concerned about getting that hit getting the new writer in to help them write the hits, you know what I mean? To follow the trend, to figure out what they're supposed to do. I mean, that's why I argue that this is their album where they sort of become a nostalgia act. They sort of sit back and they rest on their laurels and they say, we got it. You know, we're done with trying to prove anything. We're still the best there is. All right. right. You, can't, you can't accuse them of playing it safe or just right. playing no. it yeah. by any means. No. Right. And just from a guitar standpoint, too, I have a question. There's a lot of um, 
you know, A, B, back and forth stuff that, you know, Bruce is doing on the guitar. Do you think that that's like his opportunity to like mimic what's going in terms of the string stuff that's on the Gene Simmons solo record? I think he is playing the string line. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Which is a cool addition to the, to the arrangement. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Um, I agree with you, John. It's it, taken by itself. It's not one of my favorite songs. There's something about it that sounds unfinished to me. It's, but the fact that it's included here, ballsy move. Um, and then I Still Love You, which this might be my favorite version of this song. As much as you said last week, John, you felt the version on Alive 3 is kind of heavy-handed, and I don't disagree. Right. Um, this version of it, I think it's an inherently melodramatic, almost histrionic, over-the-top song, but I think the vocal is allowed to carry that aspect of the song and the lyrics are. And because everything else is now acoustic, you it kind of almost takes on a Zeppelin-like quality, like, babe, I'm going to leave you. And right. that's a really cool aspect of the song that only comes through in this performance. Yeah, again, that's uh, that's exactly what I was going to say. My thing I wrote down is less sludge. That's what makes it less, you know, there, because it's acoustic, because it's, I mean, I keep using that term brighter, but that's what the acoustic guitars and the acoustic bass create is sort of a brighter thing to uh, ride on, a more trebly feel, a little more, um, you know, you could differentiate the parts of the song, whereas on a live three, it's very boom, boom, sludgy. So I, again, don't particularly love the song, but I like the version here. Dave? Yeah, I, you know, at this point in Kiss's history, I, you know, I still love it was completely burned into the ground for me. Um, I, if I would have gone another, you know, uh, another 10 years and not heard that song in any version whatsoever, I'd have been happy. But <laughs> comes this version, yeah, I, you know what? Um, it, it, it does redeem itself to me because I do like this rendition of the song. Is it one of those songs I'm going to go back to and listen repeatedly? No. But after all the variations and permeations of that song from the Creatures Tour all the way through the 80s and Paul's, you know, you know all his yodeling and everything throughout, um, <laughs> I would try to stretch that song out and really beat it and pulverize it into the ground, And for me, anyway. And others may feel differently, but just my personal perspective is, Paul, I've had enough. Somebody keeps telling you this is a great, like maybe Gene was thinking with Domino, you know, this is my song. This is a great piece of work. Right, yeah. Uh -huh. Paul in some ways felt that way about this song. This is his Led Zeppelin song. This is you know, his, his, you know, for whatever reason, he thought this is one of the greatest things he's ever penned, uh, certainly throughout the 80s. So it really burned it. I was burned out on it. But I do like this version of the song. In fact, if I'm going to listen to it, it's going to be this version or the original on Creatures. Okay. I would go in terms of favorite versions. Um, the album version is what it is. Um, this version is probably my next favorite, but the other version that I have that is, is my favorite is still on Animalize Live and Censor because, there, again, there's the energy. It's not so mm. laid back. Um, but at the same time, too, you know, it's, it's funny because it's the chord changes are badass. I mean, it's a well-written song, and it's definitely a vocal exercise for Paul. Uh, but there's a lot of great, you know, blues licks that you know Bruce is playing in terms of the guitar stuff. Uh, but if you really want to, you know, be not 
happy with the fact that the song is as, as long as it is. You know, go back to what, what I say is probably the origin of the, the influence of this song. Go back to uh, the Humble Pie uh, Rockin' at the Fillmore album and listen to uh, Walk on Gilded Splinters. That riff is carbon copy, you know, the verse of this song. Okay. And that's like a that's you know that song is 13 minutes long in that record. So <laughs> you want to exhaust yourself of you know long songs, you know, go back to that one. But again, killer, you, know, you can't dispute the fact that Paul's a great singer, it's a great band. Bruce is playing some killer guitar, great version of this song. Not everybody's favorite version of it, but either way, there's things to like about it. Okay, and then they go from one ballad into another ballad, which again is one of those things that it, from a textbook way to present a, a concert you would say well this can never work this is a terrible idea to put these two songs next to each other but somehow i think it actually ends up working fairly well because i think they're they're two different songs they kind of contrast each other um they played the song three times all the way through and i think possibly because they had some tuning issues between the band and the string quartet that they brought out for this um I have a question for you guys. I remember them playing a version of this song and it wasn't acoustic. It was probably around the revenge era, but it was live on some TV show and they had a string quartet playing with them and somebody cued the string quartet at the wrong time. I don't know if they couldn't hear the band very well or somebody got their, their mark off, but the string quartet was way off the beat from where they were supposed to be with the rest of the song. And it was just blatantly obvious. I just can't, I can't find it on YouTube and I don't remember what, where that performance was. I don't have any memory of that, but no, no. Okay. Well, any listeners out there that know, let me know. But John, what'd you think of every time I look at you? Uh, I knew that 2000 man was coming up next. So I skipped it. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I hate to say that, but it just wasn't, I, I, at that point, that's the tail end of the album and I'm starting to lose, um, you know, attention at that point or not really paying attention to it. You know what I mean? So I, I hate to say that, but I didn't really give it much of a uh, chance. So yeah, I, yeah, you know, I, I again, you know, I like the song. I, you know, I, I like that they had the string section there. Part of me, though, is, is suspicious of its inclusion, thinking maybe you know they desperately wanted this song to be a hit, like forever. So they were going to give it another chance at life as, you know, as a potential single from this album. Is the reason why they chose it to be there as opposed to its predecessor, Forever. Um, but we'll never know. Uh, but yeah, I, I, you know, I, I'm, I'm kind of like John. I'll hit the skip button, go right to 2000 Man about this part of the CD. Mike, um, I, you know, if I, if I had two songs to include, if it, I'll say this, if I had one song to include, you know, that was a, a slow sort of, you know, uh, ballad type song on the record, I would choose "I Still Love You" over this song. Um, but also, too, you know, obviously, what's current in terms of the catalog is this a Revenge Era song. Are they still trying to promote like a single? Maybe, you know, but I mean, you know, do you need two, two ballads in a row? No, but it, it works. And to me, it's also a vehicle just to say, okay, we got a string section. Is that impressive to the audience? Right. Yeah, maybe, <laughs> you know, to some people, but you know, I don't know. Okay. I, I would skip it too.
So then if you were at the show, they were switching the set over uh, before they brought out Ace and Peter. And you would have heard Come On and Love Me, Spit, a countrified version of God of Thunder. Which is cool. I like that. Yeah, yeah. You know, Heaven's on Fire, I think they played then. Come On and Love Me there? Um, yeah, Come On yeah. and Love Me. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's interesting that they felt they needed to keep playing uh, while they were rearranging the set, I think maybe just to keep themselves amused and to keep the audience's enthusiasm up. Because if you look at how many times they played takes of some of these songs, you know, three times, four times each, it was a marathon of a day for these guys. And it would have been the easiest thing for them to go, okay, we'll see you in a half hour and we'll come back out and, you know. Um, but they didn't. They, you know, they were, for the most part, I think, really pretty relaxed and having a good time with it and enjoying the the intimacy of the the venue. Um, so they come out with two thousand man, and I should say that Ace and Peter had been touring together on the Bad Boys tour just mm-hmm. prior to this. They themselves had done an acoustic section of that tour where they played uh, of the set that when they were playing together where they would play together. So they were not complete strangers to playing acoustic stuff. Um, But man, the first attempt of 2000 Man, we go immediately from this well-oiled machine (laughs) to something that sounds like a garage band where between Ace and Peter, it's really pretty wobbly. And you can can just see like in Gene's mind and Paul's mind going like, "Uh uh-oh, this had better get a lot better, a lot quick, you know, really quickly, or we're in trouble here. Um, luckily, they found their their sea legs. So the, by the time they got through the third take of this song, you know, it doesn't sound as tight, obviously, as what Bruce and Eric were doing, mm-hmm. but it sounds like a band and it sounds good. Yeah, it kicks ass. I love it. I just love that song. I like how it goes with the. Uh... I love the acoustic vibe to it. I love Ace's delivery. He's a lot more, um, you know, um, his voice is older, I guess is the way to put it on this version. So, but I, I like it. There's no um, no complaints. Really good song. One of my favorite Kiss songs, even if it is a cover. It would have been interesting to hear Shock Me Here. I know they rehearsed it, but Ace had problems rapping his his fingers and his mind around the solo on acoustic guitar. He was, you know, I think he submittedly said he really couldn't capture it uh, the way he wanted uh, wanted it to, to come across on acoustic. So they went to this song. But you know what? Uh, I, you know, well done. I agree with you. I think the band was trying to keep the energy going. I think they were probably having some fun uh, up to this point, knowing you know, those guys are getting ready to come out. They had done some rehearsals with them by this point. Um, they probably knew what they were getting into as soon as those guys walked on the stage by this point in time. Um, but I agree with you. I think, I think there was some, some, uh, some bugs that needed to be worked out there. Um, I think some, uh, some nerves or whatever needed to be worked out between Ace and Peter in particular. But when they finally gelled, um, it was pretty badass. And, and this, is a, this is a good version of the song as ever been recorded, in my opinion. Yeah, I'm going to try and convince my band to do a cover of it now, actually. Like I, I literally yeah. started. I started looking up the parts and all that kind of stuff. I'm totally gonna try and see. If yeah, but the, the thing too, John, is this is really even though Ace didn't write it, it, it is a cover it's song. It's an Ace but, song, man. 
It is yeah. a flipping, it's like, the, it, it's an A song. It, it is, it, it really is, it, it's his personality is really captured in everything about that song. So yeah, to yeah. include it on here, I think it's, it's, it's relevant to Ace and his personality as Shock Me is, in my opinion. And it's funny, you know, Paul introduces this song and he does the whole rock star thing of, hey guys, what do you think we should play? You know, as if they hadn't rehearsed this <sighs> song constantly for the last three days, but. <laughs> Yeah, to Ace's credit, I mean, one of the things that I'll do is I'll sit around the house and I'll, I'll break out like a Fender Telecaster or I'll, you know, break out the, you know, the dreaded acoustic guitar. And if you play those Ace solos like on Shock Me, they can be done. Yeah. You know, but it, how that translates to, you know, a live audience, you know, situation is another thing. Um, but, but to me, some of the things that were like bugs that needed to be worked out were, you know, the fact that when Ace, Ace comes in on that rhythm guitar, I mean, it is pounding mm -hmm. it is relentless I and mean, he's beating the crap out of that acoustic guitar which is how he plays electric guitar you know his attack is in so heavy-handed it's great um but it, the cool thing i love too about this take two is um after he does the solo when they go to the e chord before the last chorus i mean how do you get feedback on an acoustic guitar somehow he managed to get feedback on an acoustic guitar you know he's a badass he's a loud guitar player and he's like Fine. I need a cherry sunburst, you know, acoustic guitar, and that's all I need. And I'm gonna be ace, you know. And it, it, it he can, he, he can only sound that way. Nobody sounds like that guy. And that comes across on this version of the song. And thank goodness for that. So then Peter gets his spotlight, his day in the sun, to do Beth, which they run through three times. Um, a really interesting version because you can tell that. Paul and Ace spent a long time orchestrating this thing and working it out. And they play it really tightly and really beautifully. Um, and it, it sounds great. There's a couple of weird things about the arrangement, though. The first is they presumably have a string quartet still hanging around in the background. <laughs> that they could use for this song and it would be entirely appropriate and they decide not to use at all. Yeah. And the other weird thing is that Ace adds a guitar solo to the song, which I don't know that it needed. Um, the solo that ended up on MTV Unplugged is completely different than the solo that he played uh, on at least one of the other takes. So it was partially improvised both versions are a little sloppy but i almost wish that they had gone with the other version and maybe they liked peter's vocal take better and they they mm. couldn't cut in but the the version that ended up on the cutting room floor was actually i think a much more daring more interesting melodic solo than the one that they ended up using i i liked it i mean i thought it was cool to see um his voice was great um yeah. for it which is something that i'm um I sometimes wonder if Peter Chris can actually sing and how lucky, because I've seen some bootleg stuff of him singing Beth and thinking, wow, that's a train wreck. Um, so he, he he pulls it off really well. And there's really nothing else to add to it. I mean, it's, you know, it's Beth. It's their big hit. It, there's something in the grooves of this song, particularly this version of it, that speaks to the magic of the band. Right? It's the four of those guys together create something, even with their warts, warts and all. There's just something intrinsically in that DNA that is really, to me, magical, even when they're fucking up. 
right? And there's some choppy notes and choppy performances and things as musicians, you might want to cringe and go, no, that's not, you know, that's not supposed to be that way that, you know, music theory, it shouldn't do it this way. You should do it this way, but it, it works. It's the part of the, 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 the magic of the band kiss. And I think it really does come through here as choppy as a solo was at times. I, I still think there's something about this when I heard it, especially when I heard it on MTV, that gave me goosebumps because it was just a coolness to it. And, and uh, it, you know, it may not be my favorite, you know, version of this song. You know, always go back to Destroyer, of course, but still very, very cool because, you know, to see those four guys together again after all that time, um, it just added to the element of, of, of coolness. And, and, uh, and I'm glad they did it because, hey, look, we got the reunion tour out of all this. And, and I think they had to feel the same thing. As flawed as maybe the performances may have been with those two other guys, there was a magic that was there that you didn't need the musical execution perfection, but it was the sum of those four guys together that just could not be denied. And there it is. And think about this. I mean, here's, you know, four guys that hadn't played together in years and they're going to present a new version of an old song that they haven't ever played electrically or acoustically. Everyone look at it and they're going to, this is, you know, that, talk about pressure. <laughs> yeah. My yeah. goodness. And I think, too, I think um, the original, the versions on Destroyer, I think that's in the key of D, whereas the version that's in Kiss Meets the Phantom and this version on Unplugged is in the key of C. But again, you've got guys, they couldn't have had any more than maybe two or three days together to work out an arrangement and say, this is the way it's going to be when we record this for MTV. I mean, that, again, hats off to those guys for coming up with an arrangement. Like you said, warts and all, it, it it's it's the band. It's those four guys, and they put their 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 stamp on it, and it and it comes across in a great way. And I too had goosebumps when I heard this. I thought, wow, you know, this is the version of Beth that they should have been doing for years. Yeah, in fact, they ended up adding a version, a live version to the set much later on that that was very similar to this of the yeah. electric set. Yeah, yeah, bravo. So then they bring back out Eric and Bruce. And they answer the age old question of what do you do with the panning when you've got two drummers playing simultaneously? And I guess what you do is you pan one drum set off to the left, the other drum set off to the right, and then you just open up the middle for the vocals and the bass. And, and uh, they do nothing to lose, uh, giving the main part of the vocals to Peter Chris. And uh, it's a raucous version of the song with all kinds of great ad libs from from Peter, which he's just naturally great at. And uh, there there was something truly special about seeing essentially all the current and former members of Kiss jamming together on a song for the first time. Yeah, it's I like it better than the original. And it, like you said, you you took the words out of my mouth. There's nothing wrong with this song at all. It's great that Eric and, you know, they trade vocals and stuff like that. It's very cool. I mean, it is, it's really, it's like, it's, you know, I'm, it didn't bring a tear to my eye, but it definitely was like, oh, this is cool. And of course, it, isn't this the song about anal sex? So it goes right from their one ballad. <laughs> well, yeah. <laughs> They're from there. I mean, it's funny because I was talking about the weird lens of love that Kiss puts on everything, but then, uh, they go to, I still love you every time I look at you and Beth. <clears throat> and then they're like, enough of that. And they right. get into nothing to lose. 
I love this version of the song. I love the fact that all these guys are together. They're all obviously getting along in this moment in time. You know, they're joining together really well. There's just, there's a happiness and an energy that is going on there that's palpable, you know, on that performance. You know, whether you're listening to it or you're watching it, obviously watching it takes it to another level, but I think it was very, very sincere, by the way. And I think that comes through. But I think, Dave, you, I mean, you just answered that question. I mean, I, I can't tell you how many nights I lied awake as a kid thinking about what do I do with two drum sets? You know, how do you make <laughs> You know, when I listen to 38 Special, I would think that all the time, mm. other than why? <laughs> why are there two drums? Yeah. <laughs> but now at least one of those riddles has been solved and I can sleep at night now knowing the answer to that question. So right. That's about all I have to add, brother. Yeah, or the Almond Brothers, like, why do you need two drummers? I, I, I could never get, I you could never understand the concept. But either way, Spinal Tap had three bass players on one song, so there you go. That's true. <laughs> That's true. That's true. Well, they, yeah, they've always done it. There was that famous Yes tour where they had two drummers or whatever. Oh, uh, Union, right? Yeah, yeah. Bill okay. Bruford, right. Alan White, okay. or whatever. Yeah, but one guy's playing electric, electric drum kit. Drum, so he was just sort of adding. Okay. Yeah, but I, I think the, the rub here is, you know, it's, it's, it's either like a rub or it's, they, they show that they could rise above. And when they reintroduced, you know, we're going to bring, you know, you know, Bruce and Eric back. And I guess, you know, on the outtakes, you know, there was some, some booing from the audience, which was really uncool. You know, but the fact that they brought it together when they were all playing together and they rose above that is a testament to how cohesive they were as, you know, musicians and confidence in terms of, you know, their stature, in terms of being, you know, established artists and they, they rose above it and they delivered and the fact that you know when peter starts doing his ad-libs in the choruses you could feel the audience could sort of like swell up and like ah there's that's what we wanted you know yeah. there were so many things about this record that delivered in terms of what we wanted as kiss fans for you know for over the years but you know the travesty is it was an acoustic version of all the things we've always wanted <laughs> you know, we wanted like the electric version. Granted, we got that later on, you know, in in the years to come. But still, it was you know, the precursor of what was to come. And you know, they put on the front that you were all getting along, and this is cool, and everybody's playing together, and, and that was great. And it's a great version of the song. It's it, at the same time too. It is not an easy song to execute live, either electrically or acoustically. And somehow they did that. You know, mm. it's it's a strange arrangement in terms of the song, and. But you would never get that sense by listening to this version of the song as, as you know, a listener. Yeah. Um, and it's funny because Ace, much to his credit, comes out and defends Bruce immediately and says, like, come on, guys, you know, Bruce is a member of the family. And yeah. and so, you know, you, you got to love that, uh, that Ace immediately had Bruce's back. And Paul also, to that extent, he goes, you know, you got a name like Bruce. It's kind of when, when people shout it out, it almost sounds like as mm. to imply boo, right? So, you know, he may have been right or he may have just been kind of saving face. But either way, either way, they, you know, there's a camaraderie there that's admirable. Um, mm. And then they close with the obligatory rock and roll all night, which at this point, you'd think all of these guys could play in their sleep, but it's been a really long day. They're tired. They do four versions of this song. They manage to break really? strings and all kinds of things. Huh. Um, you know, they, they, they miscue when the chorus is over. There's all kinds of flubs and stuff, but they kind of hack their way through it. At one point, when they're waiting to give Paul a new guitar, they do a quick version of Louie Louie, where Ace takes the vocals, which is a nice, uh, <laughs> nice little anomaly. Um, 
But, you know, I mean, what other way were they going to end the show than with everybody playing the rock and roll national anthem? Read my body. Yeah. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you want to clear the room, break out that one, right? <laughs> everybody go home. It's been a four-hour session. Are you tired? We're tired, too. So here go you go. <laughs> I like that they're all trading vocals on it. It's uh, yeah, nothing, nothing too amazing. You know what I mean? It's it's rock and roll all night, and that that's actually one of the funny things to me is I was like, and when they finally do play their hits, I'm not all that excited by it. You know what I mean? I prefer the yeah. sort of weird choices that they did. So I the takeaway from this song that I do enjoy is the 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 trading of the vocals. That's very cool. But you know, to John's point too, I think we talked about this before. Was this would have been an entirely different experience, really? If they had just gone saved, and imagine calling Dr. Love unplugged, you know, um, all of those songs that, you know, that we, they would perceive to be, you know, the, the mainstream kiss hits. If they would have just gone down that path, I think we'd have been talking about almost the way John just said about, okay, it's rock and roll night, it's unplugged, it's the four guys singing it, I guess that's cool. I think we'd probably been, most of our conversation would have been along those lines, but because they chose the material they chose for this album. Um, you know, I, I, you know, I, I don't miss rock and roll night on, in this case, pass, you know, fast forward in the album, you know, after 2000 man or nothing to lose. It'd been great. And, um, but you know, I, I, they had to include it and, you know, beyond that, I don't have too much more to say about it. Again, you, you have to close the show in some way, and what other way could you do it? You know, this is it. They're not going to close the Black Diamond at this point, so you know, it, it's a way to, to you know to sort of you know bring it back in terms of they started with some obscure you know B song B side songs, and uh, they close it with you know the stuff that people really know. So it, it's logically the, the song they would close the show with. Yeah, and it was the single, the only single. Yeah, it was the single that came out, and yeah. apparently went to no, number thirteen. Like huh. I know the album went gold. Yeah. Really? Huh. Yeah. So this ends up becoming kind of an arrow in their arsenal playing acoustic. This is something that um, not only leads to the Makeup Reunion Tour, but on the Kiss Cruises, more often than not, they play mm. acoustically. And they've done any number of one-off acoustic shows. Um, they've done a couple at Morongo um over the years and you know so that's kind of the legacy of this album i think as long after mtv unplugged is gone kiss has discovered that this is something that both themselves and the fans like and appreciate and, and works well it's definitely really cool that they were able to and again this is where they they're they're finally they're coming into their own they're the gen, you know, the the older statesmen of rock and roll now. They're no longer um, what they were perceived as before. Suddenly, all my, suddenly I'm surrounded by people who are like, yeah, I was like Kiss, you know, and stuff. Like that. And, it's, and you're like, no, you didn't. You yeah. hated them. I remember. <laughs> right. I remember. You never liked Kiss. You're a, you know. Um, so yeah. So I think this is. I I love this record because it's sort of them saying, you know, look at what we've done. And I've always been impressed by it. Yeah, I, I think this album was, you know, was was well-timed. Um, they certainly could have jumped in with the rest of the MTV bandwagon by doing all the hits. 
you know, I think we already beat that point in, in, up enough, but I think they were very brave with this record. You know, I think they took, it took a lot of courage and a lot of self-confidence in your material and the diversity of your material, the song choices across the board on this entire tour, as it were, the, you know, the, the convention tour. As a fan, it was great to have it memorialized and documented this way. It was a souvenir, if you, you know, lack of a better way to put it, for people like us that actually got to see it and experience it firsthand and in person. It was certainly uh, was great to have there, but I, I take my hat off to them because um, it is the one point in their career. I think they really did make a point that it's more than the makeup. It's more than the bombast. It's more than, you know, all the other things that people associate with Kiss. And really, when you get down to it, these are great songs. And uh, mm -hmm. I think it really came across on this record front to back. And to have, obviously, Ace and Peter there as part of it was a home run to me. And I'm always going to be happy that this is – is one uh, to me. It's one of the best song, best albums, and 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 in the Kiss collection. It's a, a super exciting time, you know, just to be a Kiss fan. You know, see your heroes getting back together and you know playing together cohesively, and you know the you know we call it the illusion of the fact that everybody's getting along and having fun and playing together again. I mean, that was it was an exciting time. And what, what what could happen beyond this? You know, that that was the question that I thought at the time. I thought, my goodness, you know this are they going to get back together again? You know, it was, it was really exciting as a Kiss fan. And it's a great document of, of that era. And again, yeah. too, it's, it's testament too to, to the fact that they write great songs. They're, they're well-written songs. And if you can present them in this format, then that just shows, you know, that they're great songwriters, you know, and they don't get that recognition that they deserve. No, I, I think they had something to prove and I think they proved yeah. it. And yeah. I have a vivid memory. This was obviously right after this album came out. There started to be rumors about a reunion and a makeup tour. Um, and I vividly remember drinking outside a school with you and I think Joe Mealy and I, what was it like vodka and, and Turner's iced tea or lemon blend or something? It's ridiculous. Lord knows. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, we were talking about the rumors about the reunion and we said you know what i think those are just rumors and i think we've already seen the kiss reunion it was unplugged and if that's all we get that's more than enough yeah yeah little did we know little did we know yes <laughs> so next week we will take a look at uh perhaps one of the stranger albums in the kiss catalog carnival of souls before we do that we'd like to play one song each week from uh one of us so john what song would you like to pick uh the wretches have a new single they're releasing uh, it's called all of my friends um we're actually in the process of making a very 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 cheap video for it cool <laughs> can't wait to see it until then this is all of my friends <laughs> Secrets hidden up in their attics Closets full of skeletons and old bones They only bring out to play with when nobody's home All of my friends are on some kind of list of Undesirables and anarchists 
It's not even safe to admit that you're one of our friends All of my friends know cause and effect They're notably known for abuse and neglect We're natural targets, we're perfect to blame None of my friends ever runs out of shame All of my friends are taking some kind of rap But your biggest weapon is your handicap Nothing much good ever happens to none of my friends To the foot of the throne 